How's everybody doing this morning? Amen. Praise God. Again, delighted to be here with you guys, and I'm delighted to be able to unpack this text with you. Uh, Very, very, um, very can be difficult at times, this text, uh, trying to work through it and trying to uh, wrestle with it and make sense of it. I pray by God's grace that he's able to do good work uh, by his spirit um, as we navigate this. And I pray that I do justice uh, by his spirit in, in, in unpacking this uh, for us this morning. So last week we closed um, a two-week uh, sermon kind of mini-series within our series of the Gospel of John on Jesus's, uh, one of Jesus' most popular declarations about himself. I am the good shepherd, right? And unlike the religious leaders that, that in the crowd during the hour of Jesus' teaching that we talked about last week in John 10, he was not a robber, he was not a thief, he was not a hired hand looking to fleece, looking to take advantage, looking to only be there when things were convenient for him. But we learned that Jesus was the good shepherd that would protect his sheep Sheep. He would feed his sheep. He would lead his sheep to greener pastures. And, 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 and not only would he protect them, but he would literally go as far as laying his own life down to save them. And that, of course, is, is pointing to the end of this book where Jesus is slain. The Lamb of God is slain for the sins of the world. So the shepherd in some way becomes the sheep, right, by, by being led to the slaughter in order that the rest of the sheep might be saved. He lays his own life down. Not because he was surrounded, not because he was unknowingly betrayed, not because he was left without a choice. I need you to understand that. All of those things happen, but none of those things are why Jesus ended up dying. Because Jesus goes as far as saying that nobody takes my life from me. I lay my life down upon my own accord, upon my own will. It's my own choice. If I desire, I'll I'll send angels down here to wipe out every single person that would dare lay a hand on me. But I choose to lay my life down. And not only do I choose to lay my life down, but I also choose to take it up again at any point in time that I desire to do so. Three days happens to be the number. And thus we see Jesus resurrect from the grave pointing to the Easter celebration that we're having in just a few weeks. So now we fast forward to Hanukkah, right? That's what the Feast of Dedication is. The Feast of Dedication happens in, in, in winter, and it is otherwise known to our uh, Americanized ears at this point as Hanukkah. That's what this is. It was, this was an eight-day long winter festival, you know, you know, and, and, and this particular time, one of the things that we understand about our Jewish brethren here in the, in, in, as we've been walking through John is that they love a great festival. They love a great celebration. They love a great party. And the feast of dedication was one of those great parties. Now it wasn't part of the original Old Testament celebrations. This is actually something that came in the, inter, in the intertestamental period. In other words, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament is when the Feast of Dedications or Hanukkah came about. It was a, according to gotquestions.com, if you go there and you, you look at the article on Feast of, uh, Feast of Dedications, what they'll tell you is that it goes back to the intertestimonial period, um, after the Seleucid king, uh, Antichus, and, uh, Antichus profaned the Jewish temple and forced the Jews to abandon their sacrifices and adopt pagan rituals. A group of Jewish freedom fighters rose up in the midst of that and they defied the oppressive pagan regime and overthrew 
the regime. And the temple in Jerusalem was rededicated to God. And ever since then, the Feast of Dedication has been celebrated to com- commemorate this meaningful event in Jewish history, end quote. So this was a festival, and this festival was marked by lights, similar to the Feast of the Tabernacles that we talked about, where there was great light during the Feast of the Tabernacle, a time in which worship that had been outlawed by pagan nations was now restored and brought back to its rightful place in the temple of God, a time in which a country's religious freedom, right, was being reestablished. And so imagine a time in which your faith was not simply not favored, but your faith was literally outlawed. That if you were even found with an Old Testament or you were even found with the scriptures, that you would face capital punishment. Imagine being in a day and time in which that was possible. And then imagine some freedom fighters, freedom fighters come along and take a stand for religious freedom and they win back your freedom. And all of a sudden now you can go back to the temple free to worship your God. That's what the Feast of Dedications represents for the Jewish people. So this is a moment in which Jesus is making a case in the midst of this feast of dedication, in the midst of a celebration where worship is being righted, this is Jesus now making his case for why worship should be directed towards him. You tracking with that? The first case that he makes is the case for him being the Messiah, the chosen one, right? The one who was sent to save not only Israel, but the one who was sent to save the entire world. And then the second case he makes is his, is the case for himself as the son of God. Because the son of God doesn't necessarily have to be the Messiah, okay? But Jesus Christ is the son of God who is also the savior of the world. And so he makes his case for being the son of God and he makes his case for being the Messiah in this particular text. The savior of the world who is the son of God. So look at verse 22. It says, at the time the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So they surround him and they make one request of him. They have one request of him. And that request is to tell us who you are in plain language. Don't beat around the bush. Don't give us any shadow language. Don't, don't give us any of this kind of underhanded um, um, misdirections. Just tell us who you are plainly and clearly. And we don't quite know how honest or dishonest this request is. We don't know their motivations. Their motivations could be good. Their motivations could be off, and more than likely, I'm willing to lean towards their motivations being off based on what we see in the rest of the chapter and the rest of the text. But nevertheless, what you need to understand about their request is that it's completely and totally unnecessary. Doesn't need to be asked. Don't need it. Tell us who you are plainly. They don't need for him to do that. For reasons that, that, that really we don't necessarily know for sure. Only Jesus knows himself why he did, did things the way he did it. But for reasons that we don't necessarily know for sure, he never really gets around to declaring publicly before the masses that he is in fact the Messiah. He, he has not yet declared himself publicly and clear language beyond a shadow of a doubt that yes, I am the Messiah. 
He's hinted at it. He shared it. He shared it in private moments and in private spaces, but he hasn't publicly declared it. However, there have been more evidences declared in the shadows for them to get it. They don't need a public declaration. They've already received everything that they need from him. They don't need Jesus to declare anything because he's given them everything that they already, that everything that they need. So when talking to the one man from, from John chapter 9 uh, who, who, who was born blind, if you remember that, 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 sermon te- that sermon that we worked through a couple of weeks ago, but remember, he makes it abundantly clear to that man in private. Remember John chapter 9, verse 35 through 38, it says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and have found him. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Talking to the man born blind. He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And so that is a private moment. And we also see another private moment in John chapter 4, the famous narrative about the woman at the well. When the woman was at the well in John chapter 4, verse 25, it says that the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he is coming, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So those are private moments. But then there's also declarations that are made public, even though they are somewhat shrouded in some shadowy language. For example, John chapter 8, another text that we've worked through in sermons, verse 56, it says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So when he said, I am, they knew what he was saying. They knew what level he was placing himself on. He was placing himself on the level of God. And so in that moment, he didn't necessarily say, yes, I'm the Messiah, but he said enough for them to know what he was saying. Does that make sense? And then even in, even in Matthew chapter 3, we see Jesus um, not himself saying who he is, but God the Father saying enough, uh, uh, enough about who he is for everybody else to get the picture as well. In John chapter 3, verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus didn't say anything, but God the Father said plenty. And so they've had plenty of opportunities throughout the gospel to know who Jesus was. So the crowds begging Jesus to make himself known have everything that they need to know who he is. And this is Jesus' point in verse 25 where it says, chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe me. I've already spoken. I've already said everything that I've needed to say. There's nothing else left to be said. But he doesn't stop there. He and others haven't just told them, even if it was in the shadows, they, even if it was in the shadows a little bit more than they preferred, he and the others haven't just told them, but he has more than sufficiently shown them. In the same verse, verse 25, it says, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. So I have told you enough 
and I have shown you even more. You don't need to know anything else. You don't need to hear it again from me. There are others who would agree, right? Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee that came to visit Jesus in the middle of the night. And Nicodemus, when he came to visit Jesus in John chapter 3, it says that Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are sent from God because no one can do the works that you do unless they come from God. And so Nicodemus knows there's something to Jesus. The Jewish crowds in John chapter 7, they know it's something to Jesus because as they were seeking to arrest him, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So the Jewish crowds knew who he was as well. There's plenty of people that bear witness to this reality. Why does it appear to be so difficult for these people to believe? So there's an unnecessary thing that they're asking for. And Jesus, instead of giving them that unnecessary thing, he speaks to the necessary thing that they need. All right? So this is what Jesus does. The reason they have yet to believe that he is the Messiah has little to do with evidence. They have enough evidence. He said enough to them. Others have said plenty to them. He has done enough for them, and others have shown enough of what he has done for them. So they have their evidence, so the request to speak clearly is irrelevant and unnecessary. However, there appears to be something that they are missing, and that's what Jesus drills into, something that they do not have. In verse 26, he says, listen, but you do not believe Because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus' reason, as unclear as it may sound, is actually perfectly clear. One of my favorite commentaries says of verse 26 that as bad as we want to make it unclear, what Jesus is saying is really, really clear in the Greek. It's extremely clear in the Greek. It sounds ambiguous. It sounds confusing. But what when you read it in the Greek, it cannot be spoken and said in any other way. There are some texts that you look at, look at in the Greek where they're, they're a little confusing, right? And so you can translate it in different ways depending on who is the translator. But this particular text, there's no other way to translate it. It's as clear as, as, it, as it can possibly be. You don't believe because you are not mine. Notice the order in which that takes place. That's a shock to our senses. You don't believe because you don't belong to me. The late and great preacher Charles Spurgeon says of Jesus' words in verse 26, your unbelief is evidence that you were not chosen and that you have not been called by the Spirit of God and that you are still lost in your sins. Now, if you're paying attention, a very curious thing has happened in this exchange between Jesus and this crowd. What has happened is that they've asked for more from him to determine if he is the Messiah, but Jesus is pushing for them to understand more about themselves, not more about him. He's saying, you know what you need, or you have what you need to know about me. What's keeping you from believing is what's happening in you. Sometimes we expect more evidence to give us belief, right? 
Remember the rich man, as, as, he, was, as he was speaking to Lazarus in the, in the Gospel of Luke, there's a parable, there's a story about a rich man and a, and a poor man, poor man being Lazarus, Lazarus and the rich man, we never know his name. But the rich man dies, goes to hell. Lazarus uh, dies, goes to heaven. And they are engaged in conversation one to another. And, and, and Lazarus is in heaven as the rich man is in anguish speaking to Lazarus from hell. And he says, can, can you, at the end of this parable, he says, can you just go and tell my family? Because if a man comes back from heaven and comes down and tells my family, I know that they'll believe. And Lazarus says they have the prophets. In other words, they have the writings. They have the Bible. He says that's all they need. If they don't believe with the Bible in their hand, they won't believe if I come back from heaven. Do you understand? Sometimes the answer is not more evidence. Sometimes the answer is transformation. Hearts have to be transformed to see the illuminating light of Christ. And that heart has to, that heart has to be opened. That heart has to be made alive to see it. You can put all kinds of evidence in front of them. You can bring the best apologists, the best defenders of the faith to shake loose all of the, all of the doubts that, that, that creep up and to, and to, and to confound the skeptics that, that come along. You can, you can bring somebody to, to debate the great atheists. One just passed literally this past week. You can bring someone to debate the great atheists. And they can have all the questions answered that the atheist's heart desires to be answered. And yet, that might not be the problem. The problem may be that the heart needs to come alive. And so here are the Pharisees looking for more evidence, and Jesus says, you need none. What you need is transformation. You don't have it. That's why you can't receive me. As you contemplate about the truth concerning Jesus, the reality of God stepping into the world, wrapping himself in human flesh, dying on a rugged cross, a rugged wooden device of Roman torture for the sins of the world, as you contemplate about those things, raising from the grave on the third day, demonstrating his power to give life to our lifeless souls, as you contemplate over that, let us not simply say, I need more Jesus, or I need more evidence from Jesus in order to believe more. As you contemplate those things, instead, let us say, Strip away whatever it is in my heart, God, that's causing me to doubt you in the work of your son. Don't say, hey, can you give me some more facts? I need more facts here, more and more and more facts. Cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 118 who said, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death, creating me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit in me. Cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 118 where he says, Lord, give me eyes to see. Let me see you. Open my eyes so I can see you. 
Cry with the great lyrics. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. Not simply more evidence. Not simply more facts. I want to see you. Because that's what's truly missing. This is the necessary thing that must happen. The, the, the unnecessary thing is more facts for this group. The necessary thing is transformation. And without true, genuine transformation of the heart, they will never see. Now, Jesus doesn't just stop with this. He gives us more to ponder by seeing what this opening of our spiritual ears and eyes to hear his voice will do for us. He says in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This highlights the uh, the eternality of Jesus's messianic call. He is not just a Messiah that moves to accomplish our salvation, but he is a God to save us to the uttermost. And so if reading John gives some clarity to God's mysterious power and bringing us to himself through his own power, then it shouldn't be that much of a leap that he can also keep us by his own power. Does that make sense? If he brings you by his power, then it shouldn't be shocking to us that he can also keep you by his power. So those who are his sheep have the assurance of eternal life. Now, now one of the things in old Baptist theology is the ideal of once saved, always saved. And sometimes that's misconstrued. Once saved, always saved does not mean you say a prayer when you are 11. And as long as you prayed that prayer when you're 11, you don't ever have to worry about living for Jesus because you got the fire insurance now. That's not what once saved, always saved actually means. What the ideal and the, 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 the ideal and the theology behind the assurance or the perseverance of the saints is this, is that if God truly has saved, then the same power that he used to save is the same power behind you being kept until the day of salvation when he returns or, 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 or the day that you actually perish and go to meet him in the clouds. Does that make sense? It's not that I say a prayer and then I just whisk off into hedonism for the rest of my life and do whatever I want to do, live however I want to live. But at my funeral, you all can take comfort in the eulogy because it says he confessed Christ at an early age. That's not what once saved, always saved means. And it is a devastating doctrine to preach. What it means is that if God has captured the soul, then that soul is forever captured. And if that soul is not forever captured, it's because God has never captured it to begin with. What it's saying is that, what it's saying is the same thing that's being said in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. It's an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you hear that? You were sealed with the spirit. Who is the guarantee of of your inheritance. In other words, God's power doesn't shut off in you. The same power that awakens your soul 
is the same power that is sustaining it and keeping it alive. There's no such thing as a soul being awakened and then dying again. If the soul has been awakened, it's because God did it. And if that soul ceases to stay awake, it was because it was never resuscitated from the beginning. You tracking with that? It is no secret that walking with Christ is not easy. Jesus himself urges the one that's considering a life with him to count the cost, right? He he does not make this out to be just something that you just kind of walk into, you know, real kind of casually and cavalier. No, he says count the cost. And so it's no secret that this life can be a difficult journey. Many obstacles, hurdles exist to stand against us, to try to knock us off course, sin and temptation, failure, over and over and over again, doubt and suffering to to knock us off course, persecution, the futility of life, seeing people die, realizing that this life is sometimes not all that is cooked up to be for me. But according to Jesus, for the one who has genuinely been awakened, none of them will be able to drive. None of that will be able to drive us away from him. No one will snatch them out of my hand, is what he says. To give the Christian even more assurance, though, of God's commitment to keep us through the highs and the lows of the Christian life, Jesus doubles down by describing this keeping power as not just something he carries, but something his father carries as well. Because he and the father are one. And so he says in verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. For anyone to destroy the genuine spirit stirred faith of a believer, he has to contend with the active power, authority, and the will of not only Jesus, but the father and the spirit who has sealed him. And let me tell you something, that is not possible. It can't be done. You aren't going anywhere if you are rightfully in him. You aren't going anywhere. He is going to keep you. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about because some of you have been in the same situation that I've been in where there were times you didn't even want to be kept and yet you were still being kept. There were times you were wanting to do things other, just why can't I just be like everybody else and just go do the things that they do and just hang out like everybody else hangs out and go all the places that everybody else goes? Why can't I just do that? Why can't I just feel good about doing that? You can't even feel good about doing it. Because even when you don't want to be kept, God is keeping you. And not only is he keeping you, but he's committed to actively praying for you. John 17 says that when Jesus is praying, one of his final prayers, that he's praying for us. He's praying for you. He says in verse 15 of chapter 17 of John, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He is praying for you. That you keep them from the evil one. You say, well, hey, I think that's, I think that's for the disciples. But then, no, no, no. It's not just for the disciples. Because he goes on later in verse 20 
talking about, and, and not just for these, but for the others who have yet to come. So he is praying for you. He prays in, in John chapter 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He is praying to the Father for you. Hebrews chapter 7 says that the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is praying for you. When you're wrestling in your walk, he is praying for you. When you are doubting him and doubting his very existence, he is praying for you. When temptation is dragging you, dragging you to, your, to himself, he is praying for you. And he will never cease to pray for you. He constantly makes intercession before the throne of his father for you. You will be kept. Now, the Jews hear this and they're fuming. <laughs> this sounds like great news, right? <laughs> All this sounds like great news to me. But the Jews hear this and they are fuming with rage. They're furious. Verse 31 tells us how furious they are. So furious that they seek again to kill them. They pick up stones, verse 31, to stone them. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, of which of them, of which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, It is not a good work that we are going to stone you, but blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now they're furious, but it's not because of his commitment to keep the saints from eternally falling, but because of the audacity that he carries to think that he is so close to God the Father that he could even claim to do it. Their rage is not connected to the works. It's connected to his testimony. The unfortunate story behind this is that his testimony is upheld by his works. The thing that he's saying he is, or the person that he's saying that he is, is upheld by the works. It's almost like Denzel Washington being arrested. I don't know how we got to Denzel Washington. It's just the first celebrity I thought of, and I figured everybody knew him in the room. So it's almost like Denzel Washington getting arrested, right? Denzel Washington gets arrested. And Denzel Washington, as they're preparing and they're kind of cuffing him up and they're, they're arresting him, they're saying, sir, you know, sir, we're going to arrest you for identity theft. You know, we, we, heard, uh, we heard that you've uh, been going around telling people that you're Denzel Washington. Heard you've been spending his money. He's like, well, I am Denzel Washington. Well, sir, sir we're not going to take any more of this, right? Just, just, just cut the scam, right? Cut the con. It's over. We got you. And then Denzel Washington's wife comes and she says, what are you doing with my husband? Ma'am, ma'am, stop. Kids come along, Denzel Washington's kids come along. What are you doing with my dad? Stop. Enough of this. Denzel, you know, Denzel Washington allegedly pulls out his license, shows it to him. You bear a very striking resemblance to him, but stop the con. I mean, he's giving them everything that they need to know that he's Denzel Washington. And yet, they accuse him of not being Denzel Washington and are ready to punish him for it, right? 
And so here's what's happening with Jesus. They're saying, we're not mad at you because of the works. We're mad at you because you said that you're the son of God. Well, all of the works tell you that I'm the son of God. Does that make sense? So it's like you're refusing all of the evidence in order to know that I am who I say that I am. That's what's happening. So Jesus moves from proving his messianic or his messiahship to his sonship, which we will briefly cover here in the next few verses. So verse 34, it says, Jesus answered them. It is not written in your law, I said you were gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the, script, whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. So Jesus makes his case for two, Jesus makes his case for being the son of God in two ways. One is that he makes his case by using the law, their law, which of course is his law, but he makes the point to point to the fact that, hey, this is the book y'all use, right? So he uses their law, quote, quote, end quote, to make his case as the son of God. He begins by making his case, he begins making his case rather by appealing to the same words that the critics are using against him. He appeals to the Old Testament. He appeals to the word of God. He appeals to the law. Now, when you read what he, what he, when you read what he uses, he's actually appealing to Psalms, Psalms 82. But sometimes when the scripture is referenced, um, sometimes it's referenced as the law and the prophets. Sometimes it's referenced as the law, the wisdom and the prophets. Sometimes it's referenced as the law. When it's referenced as the law, you should see it as all of the Old Testament, basically. Does that make sense? And so he's taking all of the Old Testament and he's speaking to, in particular, Psalm chapter 82. In Psalm chapter 82, it says this, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaking. Now, here's the deal. Here's what's happening. God is gathering the judges of Israel together. And as the ultimate judge of the universe, he's setting them straight on their lack of justice towards those in the greatest need of it. Now, here's a side note about this. Stop sidestepping God's concern for justice. Stop sidestepping his regard for the most vulnerable. Not just in, in, in this, in, not just in the life to come, but in this life now. Stop sidestepping God's concern for justice. God regards the unborn, and he also regards the born who are weak, who have no fathers, who are in need, who are mentally and physically abused. He is not only concerned for their well-being, but in this passage, he is concerned about the abusers of justice that tend to happen or the abuses of justice that, that tend to happen far more frequently with the weak and the poor than they do with the strong and the wealthy. He's concerned about that. That's why he speaks to it. God regards the weakest in Israel so much that he speaks directly to those he has entrusted to be their judges. And he tells them in Psalm 82, verse 6 and 7, I said you were God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So God says, I've set you in place and I've given you the authority of God's. That means that I've let you judge on my behalf. 
But your judgment is so shady. Your judgment is so corrupt that you will fall. Instead of being like the guys that I appointed you to be, you'll fall like the princess. And I'll do the judging. So Jesus is pointing, highlighting this passage about them being called gods is if God the Father could call mere men who refuse to judge well and uphold righteousness for all people gods, how can fault be found when Christ calls himself the Son of God? The one who God set aside and sent in the world to right its wrongs, the one who will perfectly uphold righteousness that the judges all fail to do? If the others were called sons of the Most High, how can we declare blasphemy for Jesus being called the Son of God. That's the point that he's making. That's the first way he makes his case. Now, the last way he makes his case in all of this is this. Verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So the second way he makes the case for being the Son of God is again appealing to his works. Jesus again shows us this mysterious workings of faith. That even as he has given us the reason for disbelief that are surround, uh, he's given us the reason for the disbelief that's surrounding the Jews, okay? He's given us the reason for it. Which, if everybody remembers, is because they aren't his. They don't belong. Yet here, here we see him still making the appeal for them to believe. You understand this? So again, we talked about this last week. This is kind of the mysterious working of God. That he says, the reason that you don't believe is because you're not mine. And yet he's still calling them and holding them responsible to believe. The same way we talked about Pharaoh where, where he's saying, Pharaoh's not going to listen. Pharaoh's not going to listen. And yet we read God's hardening Pharaoh's heart. God's hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so there's some mysterious inner working that God is doing that we won't be able to quite figure it all out in this life. But what we know is that he is sovereign over every single ounce of it. And so he is calling them to repentance, which tells you that there is no such thing as, okay, okay, you're not going to believe because you're not his sheep, so I'm not going to even spend time talking to you. I'm not going to spend time talking to you. I'm not going to spend time. No, 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 no. If Jesus doesn't operate that way, then you certainly don't operate that way. He is appealing to the same people he just told, you don't believe because you're not mine. He's appealing to them to believe. 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 And so there is something happening in there that's beyond our understanding that is both God's working and our working. Believe. 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 Jesus makes what seems to be a very reasonable appeal. If you don't believe me, at least believe the works. Are you so blind that you can't tell when the Father is working? And the reality is, is that they are. See, the reason that they can't see Jesus' works and accept them is because they don't know the Father like they think they do. Because Jesus is, there's no one more consistent with the Father than him. His love is impeccable. His mercy is immutable. His power is invincible. His mercy or his grace, rather, is irresistible. There's no one 
more consistent with the Father than Jesus. Everything you could ever want in God, you can clearly see in him. So the question then becomes, why won't you accept him? Why won't you embrace him? It's because you don't know God like you think you do. Maybe there's someone in here who's, who's struggling to embrace Jesus Christ. And maybe you're saying, well, I love God, but yeah, I don't know about this Christianity thing. There is no one more consistent with the God that you desire than Christ. What ends up happening is that our desire for who God is changes. And instead of chasing the highest prize, which is the true God, our sensibilities become dull and we chase lesser gods, cheap substitutes. Psalms 115 says that we, that they worship, talking about idol worshipers, that they worship gods of silver and gold. And it later on, and it says, they have ears, but do not hear. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. Noses, but do not smell. Hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those are the idols. The substitutes. And it says that those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. What ends up happening in our idol worship is that we become like our idols. And so our sensibilities to the true, the one, true, great God are dulled. And we don't know him when we see him. And we won't embrace him. We exchange him for lesser things. So part of the reason why if you're in this room and you're struggling with coming to faith in Jesus Christ is because the world has sold you so many cheap substitutes that you feel like letting them go is actually losing something. Can I assure you of one thing as we wrap up? You aren't losing a thing. That turning your faith to Jesus Christ is turning your faith to the God of the universe. Turning your faith to Jesus Christ is turning your faith to the prize. It's exchanging the cheap substitutes for the highest prize, for the greatest treasure, for the only one that can satisfy your heart, not just in this life, but in the life to come. And for you that are in him, that are wrestling and toiling, you don't have to doubt him. You don't have to doubt that what you have in him is the greatest treasure that you could ever attain. I know life throws all kinds of curveballs at you, and sometimes you don't feel like you've attained the greatest treasure. Let me reassure you that what you have in Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure, and it will be realized fully and completely when this flesh is shed. We put on and we're clothed with all of the glory that he has for us. The Bible says that at that point, we will see him as he really is. Our eyes are dim, so sometimes it's shaky, our vision. But there's coming a time when we will see him as he really is. So let me encourage you, brothers, sisters, continue to stand, continue to walk with him. Continue to treat him as the treasure that he really is. He's shown us everything that we need. Now our hearts just need to believe. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you and we give you praise and glory and honor for your goodness and your grace and your mercy towards us. Father, would you continue to move by your grace and by your spirit in our hearts? Would you continue to move in the heart of the doubter and the skeptic who does not know you? Would you continue to move in the heart of the believer who knows you, but is wrestling, Lord God, because of all the trials of life? 
Father, stir us to continue to see you and see you in all of your splendor and all of your glory and all of your wonder. And let that transform the way that we live. Let it transform the way that we act. Let it transform the way that we respond to this life. Most importantly, let it transform the way that we respond to you. These things we ask and we pray in your son Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand one last time and sing uh, from the inside out as a reprise. And if anyone needs prayer during this moment as we're singing the back half of this song, if anyone needs prayer.